So as I enter into this passage, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 9, and you can see a, an outline that is printed for you, the passage there starting in verse 18 of Matthew 9. But maybe to introduce it this morning, I want to give a confession. Um, I, I confess that I don't understand why some people, Christians I'll say, find inroads into deep church community and they intersect deeply with Christ and with others and why some people just don't. Like I get some of the personal reasons, I get some of the personality reasons, I understand the spiritual and maturity reasons, but for 20 years now I've been kind of looking for a pattern and I can't find a pattern of why do some people say this is just exactly what my family needs, these, these pathways of maturity and growth, they connect. And other people, they date you, but they would never marry you or they don't know if they want to date you. I'm, I'm confessing a pastor's struggle here. It's hard to understand. Why do some people drift away and why do other people say this is deeper than I could ask or imagine? I don't know the answer. I know God is sovereign. And I love and rest in the fact that we don't have to entertain to retain people in the church. That's not how we're called to be as the body of Christ. And I praise God for that. But as I, I, I think of what I do know, and I think this might lead us into the passage, I do know that those who take the risk to get close enough to other people, not just in a worship service, but get close enough to other believers to have their own faith in Jesus exposed and to be exposed to another person's faith and wrestling in Christ. I do know that over many years I have seen those are the individuals for whom and you could almost draw concentric circles around their life where those they're called to influence see something deep in their life. Their, their faith isn't necessarily caught by osmosis, but those who get close enough to experience the exposure of Jesus in the life of another, something deeper happens there than those who will not get close enough to that. I do know that. And I think that we get a glimpse of that in this passage. And so I'm calling it triple exposure. We see a couple exposures in this text, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to ask for God to help us think about how we might need this kind of exposure at Christ's community. And I think we have much of it, but how might we see more? This is, um, this is one of many people's favorite stories in, in the Gospels. I've heard more than one person say that. In fact, if you've been with Christ Community for multiple years, I've preached on this before from the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. So not this text, but the same story. This was the passage that I preached for those of you that were with us in Costa Rica. Loud and gentle translated for me. I've never heard the, my voice sound so beautiful, and I couldn't understand what she was saying, but it was awesome. But I came back the next Sunday and preached Mark 5, but I think it was 2018. So some of you may say, I've heard a little bit of this before. And I'm glad you remember, because I think this is a passage that we should go back to and back to. In fact, a friend last week told me this text in the Gospels he reads multiple times a year, if not monthly, because he needs to be reminded of what's in this story. This is his go-to story. And so I, I pray that the, the, the depth of it, we would be exposed to it. So as I walk through Matthew 9 with you, I will reference Mark 5. I'll reference Luke 8. Those are much longer accounts, like Matthew has done in other stories. He kind of condenses the details down, but it's the same story. And so let me ask you to stand if you would, and I'll read from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. This is the word of God. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in 
and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. This is the word of God. Father, would you give us exposure to Christ and would you give us exposure through these stories of desperate faith and would you expose us to one another's desperate stories of faith and would we see you continue to work in deepening our understanding of our King and his power and his compassion and would you enable the report of it as it happens across not just this church but churches that declare the gospel, people that depend on you together with the report of its spread and will we fulfill the Great Commission as we watch it spread through our testimony? This is our prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So the text says, while he was saying these things, behold. All right. So where is Jesus saying things? Uh, just a reminder, if you've been with us and tracking, Jesus is still at Matthew's party. Jesus is at the home of Matthew, the tax collector, and there's so many people there. And this ruler shows up right as he is still, as far as we can tell, answering the question to John's disciples. Right? Why are you all feasting when the Pharisees, we fast? It's a confusing scene with all sorts of people there. And now we have another person show up to this party. He's a ruler, and he, he exposes his own desperate faith straight out of the gate. We're told the man's a ruler. In the Gospel of Mark and Luke, we're told a ruler of what? He's a ruler of the synagogue. Not a rabbi, there'd be a difference, but you could say he's in charge of the operations of the synagogue at one level or another, perhaps the facility or the services, or I read some places this week that says he might be about setting up the worship services. He would choose the readings and things like that. But what we need to know is he's, he's a member of Jesus' opposition. Right? He's a ruler of the synagogue, and yet he's also a very revered man. And so kind of imagine the scene. I mean, it's a perplexing scene. We've already seen Pharisees, tax collectors, you know, John's disciples. And now this known ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum comes walking in. We'd expect him to walk in with decorum, with sort of his own clout, and yet we see something altogether different. He unabashedly throws himself at Jesus' feet. He kneels. R.C. Sproul says he postures himself in worship. Or back to what I made a comment about before our confession, his whole body and soul as a broken father is all connected and he just hurls himself at the feet of Jesus. In that moment, there's nothing close to a prominent synagogue ruler representing the synagogue. There's just a desperate father in need of help. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he says, my daughter's just died, but come and lay your hand on her. He's on his knees and he begs. I've been here long enough now and in other churches I've served, whereas I would preach a sermon about, I'd look around and I'd know that some of you don't have to stretch very far in your own memory bank to say, I've done that. 
I have thrown myself down and I have begged for God to do something that I don't see any other pathway forward unless he does something. About any number of things, I know that's the case, but let's imagine the desperation, the lump in the throat. And I know that the other accounts say my daughter is on, the, on death's door. She's about to die. I can just imagine this man mumbling it out. When I left the house, she was on death's door. She's probably already dead. Come to my house and touch her. He's desperate. He's got a desperately bold faith and he begs. And we see right away, Jesus responds. He's going to leave this party that he's been at with all these different scenes we've been looking at. He rises to go. His disciples go with him. And we need to understand, according to the other gospel accounts, a great crowd followed him. So picture it. The sinners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the disciples of John, probably not all of them, but many of them, they follow. It's a great crowd. Jesus is finally on his way out of this party. The father must be comforted, but then his impatient heart must have just stopped. Because Jesus stopped. But why would you stop, Jesus? We're, I need you to go to my daughter. Why are you stopping? And Mark 5, 31 tells us that it was Jesus who stops and says, who touched me? If ever there was an incident, as one commentator said, where the disciples are annoyed with Jesus, it's this one. Because in the other gospel accounts, they say, what do, you, what do you mean who touched you? Like, everybody is touching you, right? Sounds like the back of my minivan, right? Somebody touched me. Everybody's touching you. <laughs> but there's another woman in that crowd. And you have her in your outline there, just as a suffering woman, a nameless woman. And for many in the church, this woman has been a favorite to look at. A central character in the Gospels. Let me tell you why. She does not show up filled with entitlement. That's a breath of fresh air. She does not believe Jesus owes her anything. She doesn't even want to come toward him in the front. She's going to approach him from behind. She doesn't want to interrupt him. She doesn't want any attention at all. She's desperate. She's alone. She's awkward. She's had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she thinks if I can just get myself to break through this crowd and reach out and touch his garment, maybe. No, I believe I'll be made well. But if, as soon as we see her say, if I can touch his garment, we know that she's got sort of a, ba a, a broken faith, doesn't she? She's not correct about this. She's superstitious, syncretistic in her faith. She has connected Christ to the things that she might know of other pagan even religious leaders, right? So it'd be common in her day for superstition to abound that holy men, again, from pagan traditions, their power could be in their hair or in their saliva or in their clothes. And she shows up desperate with that assumption to Jesus. And yet, as broken as her faith is, as she's actually incorrect on that account, there's no magic in his robe. She has a bold, real faith that is utterly, totally, hopelessly dependent on him to do something. We did our word work, Pastor Bill and I, a few weeks ago, and he made the comment, she's not that far off, though. Did you know with me that she may have heard that the robe of a priest, according to Numbers chapter 15, verse 37, the robe of a priest, especially the tassels and the hem, was supposed to serve as a reminder of the authority of God. 
in the priestly garments they were supposed to wear. So, so maybe she's not that far off. Maybe she does know that if that tassel of that robe represents God's authority, this man has authority. He's proven he has authority. And so she sneaks in to draw near to Jesus to touch him. I do think of Hebrews 11, verse 6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And that's what she's believing. If I can just draw near to him, he'll reward me. He'll make me well. But it's, it's being made well way beyond just physical healing. We, we know that. According to the other gospel accounts, this woman is not just suffering from 12 years of hemorrhaging, she has spent all the money she has on physicians that cannot heal her. Maybe it's been your life or maybe you know somebody else who has just gone from doctor to doctor to doctor, treatment to treatment, and it's just not working. She's in a very hurting place psychologically, emotionally, as well as physically. But more than that, we have to think relationally, she's totally alone. Because according to Leviticus 15, if she has been bleeding for more than a decade straight, then she has been richly unclean and unable to worship with God's people. She's been unable to be around others. She is unclean. So she's been estranged from family and friends and no one's texting her. I assure you of that. If she was married, she is very likely divorced at this time. Or at least she's not had a husband to care for her in her presence. If she's single, this pretty well ruins the chance for that. No one's allowed to touch her. Why would anyone want to? Because she would make them unclean. And and so with this aloneness, she sneaks into the crowd and she reaches out and says, if I can just touch him, that's all she knew to do without drawing any attention to herself. But she knew that if he did anything, it would make her well beyond just physical healing. Her social isolation would be redeemed. Her family distance reconciled. Her worship privileges restored. Let me go back to what Jesus taught with the disciples of John, what he was actually saying when the man walked up. He was saying that basically the new replaces the old. You can't mix the old and the new. And this woman is saying, if he does anything, I can be made totally new. This old life that I've known will go away. And so now imagine it. Matthew is not one for details here, but Mark 5, 29 tells us that the moment that it happened, she knew in her body that she was healed. That's how Mark writes it. She knew the hemorrhaging had stopped, but she's not the only one that knows something. In the other gospel accounts, Jesus says, who touched me? Imagine with me. um, Do you think that she had any idea that would happen? Do you think that she wanted to be called out? I mean, as I read in one place, she wanted a touch and run here. She had no interest in being called out. Why would Jesus call her out? I think there's three reasons, and I'll just list them for you briefly. I think the first reason he called her out is so that he could have a moment of intimacy with her. We have that in Matthew's account. He says, take heart, daughter. And talk about terms of affection. Take heart, my daughter. I think he called her out to honor her, to look her in the eyes. He saw her. He slowed it all down to be with her, this woman who had had no one be with her. I think there's a lesson in this for us. If this is who God is revealed in Christ, then we need to understand that God is never hurried in our own experience of him in our lives. 
He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows all things about every creature. He sustains the whole creation. But in the midst of it, he knows every one of our pains and our worries. Even as he's governing and upholding all things, his eternal glory and responsibility does not cause him to not notice you or me. I think of Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. He, he stops this moment and says what he says to intimately show her he cares for her. I, my wife's not in the first service, so I usually say things in the first service that I won't say in the second. Um, this might be one of those. I married a woman who... I don't think you can ever prepare to be a pastor's wife where everywhere you go, he might forget where you are in a crowd because he's always talking to other people. And the times in which I, f I find her and I see her and I tell her I'd rather be with you than with them. No offense to all of you people. I love her better than a lot of other moments that I think she feels it because I see where she is and I didn't forget where she was. And I so easily can. That's what's happening in this scene. I think there's deep intimacy. The second thing, more briefly here, restoration. I think he called her out to restore her. All those people are watching. This is just like the leper. They saw and they heard Jesus declare that she is clean. So all of her isolation she could be restored out of. Because that's what God does, right? I mean, that's what sin and shame does. Shame isolates. This woman certainly would know the shame and the distance that her malady and it caused her to have. And now in one instant, Jesus is going to restore her to this crowd and say, she belongs here. She's welcome among you. So I think there's intimacy, there's restoration. And then the third thing, which will lead us forward, exposure. Jesus knows that there's somebody in particular watching this whole thing, this ruler, this father, he's still there. And I just picture him, he's off to the side at some level. The longer this takes, he, he, he's watching, he's listening, but he's probably getting so aggravated. He's probably angry. Let me read to you from Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King, as he talks about this story. He says this, imagine the ruler's anxiety during all of this. This woman with a chronic condition is getting attention instead of his little girl. And Jesus chooses to stop and talk with the woman. This makes no sense. It's absolutely irrational. In fact, it's worse than that. It's malpractice. If these two were in the same emergency room, any doctor who treated the woman first and let the little girl die would be sued. Jesus is behaving like a reckless doctor. I imagine that's how the father felt. But he was there and he's listening, he's watching, and he heard Jesus say, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And so he's exposed to her faith and he's exposed to the compassion and power of Jesus. And so I don't know what you're wrestling with now. I can always make presumptions. I don't know where you're desperate and depending on Christ. If you're a Christian and you depend on him to take away your shame and guilt, but it keeps coming back at you, maybe it's that. Maybe it's comfort for you and your family in light of physical or relational scars that you have. Maybe it's to heal you of a weakness or an addiction that just keeps coming at you. I don't know what it, it might be, but think of the encouragement here. For this father, he's looking and he sees what Jesus will do with basic 
functionally incorrect faith. But it's desperate faith where this woman went to Jesus. I just imagine it lifted him and it should lift us. Maybe he even borrowed her faith a little bit. And Jesus started moving again. I can picture this man's heart racing. Daddy is on his way with the healer who can do amazing things with just the most basic faith. And I have that faith. The other accounts tell us that, that in this moment, he looked up. And standing in front of him were some of the servants that he instructed to stay by his daughter's bedside. They don't have to say a word. They're not supposed to be there. But they do say something. They say, Master, don't trouble the teacher any longer. She's gone. And Jesus looked this father in the eyes and the other accounts tell us that he said, do not fear, only believe. <laughs> believe in what? Well, in something way greater than his daughter being healed right before she takes her last breath, in something way more impossible than this woman having her bleeding stop, he was to believe in the resurrection of his daughter. In fact, I, as I try to put the Matthew account with the other accounts, I kind of wonder if this is the moment where what Matthew records for us is what is spoken. This is the moment where when he realizes she's dead, he looks at Jesus and he says, my daughter has died, but you can touch her still. And then that's what happens next. This man is exposed to Jesus as savior and resurrector. So they arise, arrive, excuse me, at the ruler's house and Jesus sees the commotion. He sees a crowd there. In this day, there'd be professional mourners playing the flute, instruments. I imagine lots of professional mourners because this man was a very important person in Capernaum. Mourning was public in this day, not as much private. These professional mourners would be a kind of a way to guarantee that no one grieves alone. It was to help people in God's family rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, Romans 12, 15. But Jesus sees the crowd and he says, you all can go away now. She's just sleeping. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they laugh at him because they know. They know she's dead. As I quote from a very, very helpful movie here, she's not just mostly dead, she's all dead. They know that. And so they laugh at him. And you can sense the aggressive mockery. So Jesus is about to be exposed as the giver of life. But before he's exposed as the giver of life, he's exposed as the one who's going to suffer humiliation. How's that for a foretelling of his cross? He's going to be exposed to humiliation before he exposes his glory. Same thing here as his own cross. They're effectively calling him a fool. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. No human would laugh in God's face in the end. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, the one who's laughed at as foolish is worthy of boasting, for he is fully God. And Jesus is going to reveal that in a moment as he raises this girl up. So when he says she's not dead but sleeping, he's not saying she's not dead. He's saying he's about to wake her up. Her sleeping, her death is not final. 
Mark tells us that when he pushed the crowd out, that he took in Peter, James, and John, and the parents, they're the only ones that go in. He looks at her and he says, little girl, get up. Matthew just tells us that he took her by the hand and she rose up from death to life. So if, we're, if you're tracking with our sermon series, think of how Matthew keeps escalating the glory and authority of Jesus. One pericope, one story at a time. Right, So we've seen him have the authority in his teaching beyond anything anyone can compare it to. And then we see that he has power over disease. Then he's got power over the physical. He can, he can calm the storms. Then we see he has power over the metaphysical. He can cast out demons. Then we see that he has power over paralysis and things like that. And then we see that he has power to call a tax collector and change his heart. And now we see he has power over death. He holds the keys to death, as Romans 1, 8, Revelation 1.18 says, for he himself defeated death. But the way the Bible teaches on it, go to Isaiah 53, or we could look at Matthew 8.17. Before he defeated death, he bore our infirmities and our sickness and our shame and our pain and the mockery. Then he defeated death. And it's much the same in this scene. And so we're going to transition toward our final point here. But if he can raise the dead, and if he's who he says he is, and if he can lift up the head of those who are desperate, I just want to ask you, do you believe that he can lift your head when you are downcast and hopeless about anything? This is what I long for for Christ Community Church, that we would look up and be exposed to each other's desperate faith in a God who can resurrect and who has resurrected his own son from the dead. We, we should ask for and want collisions and intersections of exposure to one another's raw faith in the worst and hardest of times. I mean, so consider that these stories in the Bible, they were never meant to be isolated incidents ever. They are put together. It's why that story of the woman is sandwiched between the two parts of the ruler story. They go together. Each person is hopeless. Each person has no claim to meriting Jesus' response. Each person has a life that is desperate to believe. Here's what I think it shows us in this room. I'll use myself. My depending on God to do something in my life, things revealed in his word, my depending on God to do that, to forgive me of my sin, to have the power to restore relationships, to hold my children, to bring his kingdom down to earth such that the gates of hell don't stand a chance against it. My believing that depends on my being not just convinced of it in the word by the spirit, but also my being exposed to how God does the impossible in the things you don't believe or struggle to believe, I should say, that he could resolve in your heart. But unfortunately, in the church, it's, it's often been said, you know, I can't relate to others there. They don't know what I'm going through. I mean, they, your faith works for you, and Jesus seems to have helped you in your desperation, or in your guilt and shame, or in your marriage, or in your parenting. It seems like it's worked for you, but you don't know that my situation is way more impossible. You don't understand that bridge is unrepairable. That guilt is uncoverable. You don't understand. See, surely for all of us, there's something that we feel justified to declare is impossible. That God just can't do that. 
Like, you know, Psalm 27, we'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, but not me, not that situation. But what happens? What happens in a community of believers if some of us kind of sneak in through the back door, try not to get noticed and just reach out and say, I need you, Jesus, to do what I don't think is possible. And somebody else crashes through the front of the crowd and interrupts the party and throws himself on the ground and says, I don't know if this is fixable, but I believe that he resurrected Lazarus from the grave. I believe that he raised up the young lady. I believe he himself rose from the dead. What happens if we're exposed to that? then what we believe Jesus can do is multiplied and then some across the region, if we will, across not just the body of Christ, but all of our friends and our family. See, that's what this is all about. It's what we should be praying for, I think. Think of what Paul prays in Ephesians 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your being, and that, that Christ would dwell in your heart and that being rooted and grounded in his love, you'll have strength to comprehend with everyone, all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth and that you know the love of Christ. Well, how does this happen? I think it happens by word and spirit, but it happens by being exposed to somebody else, believing it and showing us how it's effective. That's how it happens. I think it happens in places like our women's retreat this weekend, I hope. I think it happens in our fellowship times. I think it should happen in our community groups. It should happen in discipleship groups. I was with a pastor this week who, did, in a different denomination who went to our preaching workshop, and I, I was excited to come back. Thanks be to God. And he asked me a question I wasn't prepared to answer, and it's an awkward question to share with you, but I will share it because I felt awkward. He said, Jim, why has Christ's community seen God grow it over the last years? He just stared at me. Well, I want an answer. And I said, well, I think that we're trying to expose God's people to God's son in God's word. And then I think God has given us people who are willing to expose their own wrestling to one another in community. Of course, I knew what I was going to be preaching on, so that was like a reminder of my sermon notes. But I was like, I really do think it's those two things in tandem. We have individuals in this church who I know don't want to share things. And I know there's other individuals who, who said, I will share my divorce story with another person. I will share my addiction story with another person. I'll share my grief with another person. And I'll share how Christ has resurrected me in that time. I'll share my parenting struggle. I'll show you that I don't have it figured out. I will desperately show you because I am desperate, but I believe the gospel is sufficient. And when that happens, guess what? It spreads. And that's the way the text ends. It says that the report of this went through all the region. So I'm going to close up, but I do want to close up with a, uh, an unrehearsed part of my notes that's culturally applicable. In the newspaper this week, there was a billboard up on Milligan Highway with, you know, like 24-inch letters. It wasn't put up there by Milligan University. I need to say that. But the words were holy, big old words holy, and next to it were particular, mostly gender and sexuality descriptors that are things God does not call holy. And there were scripture references which are somewhat humorous to me, but that's another story. Here's why I bring this up to you. 
is everybody wants to market and share what they believe is important. And I just don't think the church ever needs to put up a billboard. I don't think we need to market. I think what needs to spread is relationships where people are desperately exposed to one another as we desperately depend on Jesus. And then those whom God has placed in our sphere of influence, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, are exposed to that. That's far and away better than a billboard because it's your life and the people that know you and are watching you. And so may we trust that God would spread his kingdom by means of what we see in a text like this. And would he do it and surprise us if he wants? But we trust him. So let me pray. Father, would you be glorified as we trust in you? And we do so now with the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, you came and you suffered, you died, you rose from the dead, and that is the center of all we believe. And we believe that you can then resurrect us up from our times of depression and sorrow and sadness and fear and sin, for we have been raised with Christ by faith alone, in grace alone, revealed in your word alone. We pray we wouldn't be alone in believing it. We would see it in the lives of those around us. This is our prayer in Christ's name I pray. Amen. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Scripture says he took bread. He broke it, and he said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. He said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat the bread or drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not the table of Christ Community Church. It's the table of those who belong to Jesus, who believe that he is the resurrection and the life. And he's extended mercy to you. And he has borne all of your sin, guilt, and shame such that you can stand and come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence for you've been exposed by faith to God's provision of your salvation in Jesus. If that is something you've placed faith in, this table is for you. If you don't believe the gospel, scripture says don't partake. This table is for you if you believe the gospel. Let me pray. Father, would you nourish us now as we take this? Would we taste and see that you are good? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.